Hello, everybody. I wanted to start this episode by addressing something that is a bit somber, but nonetheless, this time of year tends to be a point of reflection for many people. And for me personally, it's been a major one. And I would like to address that with you all right now. Over the last two weeks, as you know, I took a leave of absence. And the reason I did that is to address some health issues. And over the course of doing so, I was met with some complications, which were completely healed and addressed. But in that moment, they were very scary. And I came out of that experience slightly traumatized, but very grateful for my life and very grateful for Matthew and very grateful for my cats and very grateful for my art practice. And that also means very grateful for all of you and the relationship that I've formed with so many of you on social media over the past four and a half years. And then I came home from, you know, receiving my medical treatments. And a day and a half later, I found out that somebody who played a very integral role in my almost daily life had made the decision to take her life just two days before. And this is somebody who I was very close to and uh, admired very much and felt a lot of affinity towards and actually <laughs> listened to very much about how I should sort of structure parts of my day-to-day -day life. So in a sense, she was a coach. She was a mentor. She was somebody that I really looked up to. So this loss was devastating to me on multiple levels. And it's been especially hard because, you know, this is somebody that was in my daily life. And then she was just gone one day. You know, I had to sit with the grief for a few days and it, it has been very, very hard. And then I decided to actually share my experience in my stories on Jerry Gagosian to let you guys know why I hadn't been posting memes and why I haven't really been talking to anyone. And the immense response that I received from you guys, from my audience, has been so powerful and so soothing and so full of love and reassurance. And I really wanted to thank all of you who took the time to reach out to me in this period. You know, losing a friend or a loved one by suicide is devastating and something that can completely blindside you and quite often not something that you'd ever really expect. And it's also something we don't really discuss very often. 
And what I was most surprised by when so many of you reached out to me is how many of you have also gone through and experienced the very same kind of loss that I just recently experienced. And it was very comforting to hear from so many of you and to feel the love through all of the messages. And let me tell you, I read every single one. And I didn't write back long, deep messages to each one of you, but I want you to know that I took in every single message. And it meant so much to me. And I just want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. And, you know, I don't feel particularly funny right now. And it will probably take me a little while before I'm in the mood to start making jokes again on the internet. But I I love you guys. It's 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 wild to think that I started this project for plus years ago and over the course of this period I have made so many friends and so many relationships with people who otherwise I would have never met who've been able to support me and carry me through a loss like this and I truly from the bottom of my heart want to say thank you and I wish you all Merry Christmas, and that's really all. Thank you again, and and thank you for being so selfless and sharing your experiences with me because it will help me get through this. And with that, we are going to have a great show, so... Hey everybody, welcome back to Arts Mac. This is episode eight. I'm your host, Matt Capasso, and I'm here with... Jerry Gagosian. Hey Jerry, what's going on? Not too much. It's Christmas Day. I'm wearing my celebratory red lipstick that I keep just for Christmas. I'm in pajamas that I plan to not take off for the rest of the day. I'm ready for a very long day of eating. Planning on watching several movies, extreme amounts of napping, <laughs> and lots of coffee and being with family. It is Christmas, guys. We know you're all busy, but Jerry and I wanted to come on and drop an episode for you this week. And it's going to be a good one because we are planning on reviewing the year of 2022 for all of its good and all of its bad. And it has been a wild ride. It, what can we say? It truly has. And then after that, Jerry and I will give you our predictions for 2023. So stay tuned. It's a great episode. Welcome back to Artsmack. And now... The 2022 retrospective, an introspective and thoughtful look back at a year that, in some ways, as shocking and whiplash as the entire year felt to be, seems something like a opening into what is 
chalking up to be a very big year, 2023. So we're going to run through some of the more paramount moments of this year and what caused these events to take place and how they have reverberated and resonated in culture over the last year and what it means for the upcoming year. You ready? I'm ready. I would say the number one thing that really defined 2022, despite all of the noise of all the other news stories, is truly the story of inflation. Yep. That has been the story of all granddaddy stories as it has matriculated its way down into the rest of the world. So, Jerry, you have been doing some of what I would think is the best writing on this topic of inflation for the art audience. And the macroeconomic backdrop of 2022 is really important to kick off this retrospective with because I believe as do you, that the inflationary environment is influencing decisions that are being made and defined many of the other trends that we're going to talk about this year. So I'm going to give a quick recap of how we got here on inflation. The beginning of this year in 2022, inflation in the US hit its highest levels in 40 years. And the causes of this, it's multifaceted, but Experts agree it was likely due to fiscal stimulus during the pandemic by governments globally, it didn't just happen in the US, but in Europe as well, that these spending programs to protect and support citizens during the pandemic increased the level of cash in the system by orders of magnitude. When the vaccines came into play, it caused a boom in demand for customers, for things like travel and dining, and even products like used cars. Food costs rose too because of demand increases, but also there were labor shortages, people who could not work in these, these plants or these restaurants. And transportation costs also increased. And related to that, energy prices went through the roof in the last year, mostly due to the Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So all these things, it almost like it created a perfect storm. And what the central banks did across the world was enter into what's called tighter monetary policy. So they looked at this inflationary environment and said, we have to fix this. We have to do what we can at any cost. And that included raising interest rates and also doing some activities to pull all that excess money that was floating around in the system out. And I think inflation really is a true story of what happened in 2022, a defining story. Mm -hmm. So- I think we're both in agreement on that, right? Yeah, and I think memories are short. 2008 was not that long ago for some of us, 14 <laughs> years ago. And we remember what that looked like. And we remember what that recession felt like. And in particular, we were around in the art world at that time. And we saw what that looked like. The world has changed so much since then. And so it's, of course, as I wrote in one of my more recent newsletters, I love seeing an art world when an art world feels it's doing its best. You know, it's mm -hmm. like watching people in love. It's very happy. Everyone's 
batting their lashes and walking around with tons of pride and their head is in the clouds and they're, you know, sort of living in a little bit of a fantasy imaginary world. And that is a, a beautiful sight to behold because it's like not necessarily reality, but it's reality for those people in that moment. And that means that in turn, those artists are doing well, those dealers are doing well. There's a little ecosystem there of people that are going to be doing great. And that makes me very happy when I see that happen. But from everything I have been studying and watching, especially with the economy and inflation and what the Fed has been trying to do to tame inflation, the the labor markets are about to begin to really see and feel these things. I know very well that, you know, it's a last one in, first one out type of situation when it comes to art, which is this premium luxury asset, which I love art. It's a part of my heart. It is a part of my soul. It is a part of my everyday life. But art, certainly in a literal sense, the art that hangs on my wall doesn't necessarily, no, the art on my wall does not feed me. <laughs> the art on my wall does not provide me shelter or protections from war or, you know, like mm -hmm. it doesn't do those things. You'd the, say it's not a necessity. It's not a necessity. And even the incredibly wealthy, beyond the exception of the 0.01% who will buy and continue to buy with impunity, they're not going to feel this and bless them for that. Yeah. I... They're not going to feel this. But I would say the middle, the, the even the, the rich, the middle rich, <laughs> let's call them the middle class rich. And these are still people that are going to all the art fairs that are collecting regularly. These people, they're going to be tightening their belts. And that goes all the way down to like the little tiny collectors you've never heard of before who support little tiny baby emerging galleries. So the art ecosystem should be bracing for impact right now. And it doesn't matter really where you fall in that unless you are so, so hyper insulated in a blue chip palace so to speak and even then you're you're not immune completely but like you should really begin to prepare for a dynamic or one may say a drastic financial marketplace for the contemporary art world in the next 2023 i think you're 100% right and that the environment for art will look drastically different in 2023 than it did this past year. And I think your analogy of last one in, first one out holds water in this instance. You know, 2022, all things considered, actually was a pretty good year for the art market from the data. 
I think you and I would agree through conversations we had with people this year at galleries and art fairs and with collectors that people are certainly mindful and express trepidation. But nonetheless, like I was able to pull some some quick statistics, which I really think help illustrate the picture. As you stated, actually, wealthy collectors remained pretty unfazed by this downturn. They continued to buy works. And one of the interesting data points is that the median price that a collector spent on a work of art increased from 164000 in 2021 to 180000 this year. So the prices that they would pay for objects increased. In the first half of this year, of 2022, the share of collectors buying works over a million dollars doubled from 12% in 2021 to 23% in 2022. Not to mention the incredible success story that was Christie's sales this year, which broke their 300 plus year record. So you did see in the data, at least, that the art market remained resilient in the face of a stock crash, a bond crash, and what we'll talk about in a minute, a crypto slash NFT crash as well. So I think you're exactly right. 2022 was steady in the art market and we will make predictions at the end of this segment, but I think 2023, the environment will look drastically different. So one of the other trends that happened this year, and I'm not exactly sure if it happens specifically this year or, or if it was happening, is this idea that mega minus galleries, which is just this term that I've invented <laughs> Because I don't really know what to call these galleries anymore. They're not they're not what I guess we would traditionally call a mid-tier gallery. Right. But they're not a mega top four gallery. Right. You know, they're mega minus. Emmanuel Periton's a good example. Almin Rech is a good example. I can think of a few more. Even David Kordansky in terms of his programming. He he only has two locations now, but just this rapid expansion in terms of physical locations around the world and the amount of art fairs that these galleries seem to continue to be doing at such a fast rate. I mean, they're really keeping up. Like, mm. they are fighting for their place and they're not submitting to this like mega gallery hegemony that I think a lot of the megas sort of expected or hoped a lot of these galleries would sort of just give up and either merge with them or sell off to them or whatever. Instead, there's a lot of really tenacious shrewd business people within this sphere that are vehemently fighting back by continuing to expand their empires in the art world. And in a sense, I think <clears throat> I'm not ready to do it yet, but I think pretty soon there will need to be a reevaluation of how many, in fact, mega galleries there are in the world. Almin, Paritan, Kordansky, all three of them, and, and there's more. I just picked right. them as the example. They are still working with artists who, for lack of a better term, this might sound very harsh, they're market testing these artists, right? 
They're working with artists who don't have a proven track record, a.k.a. they're emerging. I mean, they're not emerging out of the depths of the sea and no one has ever heard of them before, but they're emerging and they're working with them to see, like, how do they do? How do they do at an art fair? How do they do, you know, if we put them at one of our smaller satellite fairs and give them a solo show? How do they do if we, you know, send them to one of our Asian galleries? Right. How do they do if, oh, all of a sudden we give them a pop, uh, a solo show in Paris or if we give them our New York space? Like they're sort of market testing a lot of these artists. And if you pay attention to their actual rosters, they don't sign a lot of these artists. You're right. There's a lot of testing. Nonetheless, their footprints continue to get larger and larger. And it has been very interesting to watch in 2022, I suppose, because you know, the emerging speculative market took off at such a high speed and many of the galleries I just rattled off were at the center of that, the mega blue chip galleries. They're doing something different. I'm watching a lot of them do, you know, some of the cliche stuff like work with Jeffrey Deitch and then sort of market test that way or Bill Powers or something like that, market test that way, and then like maybe throw in someone who's been doing well with, you know, Jeffrey Deitch into a group show and never really particularly sign any of these artists, but, you know, catch the wind off of their backs, make a few great sales, keep them fresh, keep them relevant, whatever, so that they can also prop up you know these high 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 prices for their more established artists we watch that happen on a regular basis so you know they're doing that sort of in their own way but blue chip galleries on the mega level they tend to act relatively conservative if you think about who they show what they show and in what capacity They're not really swinging around testing things out with people. If you happen to end up in a group show that's even loosely affiliated with one of these galleries, the language is usually very, very careful to keep the gallery themselves very distant from the artists themselves. It might be a curator in their spare time is curating this show, you know, like they intentionally create this space and this distance. But I I think now because there has been such an insatiable appetite for emerging contemporary art, which I do believe is about to slow down, but because that has been the trend now for the past year and a half, two years, We're going to see all of these, you know, mega minus galleries as well. Sorry, I don't want to get too much into predictions yet. But mega minus galleries and these blue chip galleries really pulling back on that type of programming. Because we've seen them 
pumping, 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 pumping at this speed where you're like, I used to know what to predict from Pace, from Hauser and Worth, from David's Werner. The names that are flying out of their press release office are coming so quickly and so fastly. These days. I'm like, I don't, I don't know who these people are. Who are these people? I'm like sitting here having to Google. And <laughs> then I'm laughing even harder when I'm like, not only did this person just graduate, they just graduated with like a bachelor's degree. And they're not even waiting anymore for people to get an MFA. They're like, come on, kids, hop on. Get on the express train. Get on the express train. And it's just been so wild to watch. And there's definitely going to be some significant cooling in that area because that kind of cash is just drying the F up. So speaking of things that are significantly cooling, I don't think you can tell the story of 2022 without hitting on the crypto meltdown. So the monetary policy that the Fed enacted to counteract inflation had all sorts of downstream effects, and one of them being that people were less interested in investing in risky, high-flying, flashy, unnecessary shit, which could be an omen for the art market. But in general, this was most felt in crypto and in NFT. So NFT volume of sales, the number purely just of sales that took place, and the prices of those sales decreased over 90% since January. So you guys know the stories. The crypto industry has been through such a huge flux this year from things like SBF and the FTX scandal to, I, I don't even, I can't even unpack this one because it's such a clusterfuck, but the scandal of this Luna, Terra, Tether, Stablecoin, and Three Arrows Capital. So there was a collapse that happened even before the FTX thing. Not to mention stuff with the Yuga Labs, the creators that we've hit on a couple of times, the creators of Bored Apes and CryptoPunks that are now being sued. And... All of this has led to a collapse in the prices and volumes and activity in this arena. But I think, and I don't know, Jerry, if you'd agree, a general shift in the perspective of consumers towards these things. By that, I mean, I think in 2021, when an investor or a customer was approached with something in this Web3 space, like a blockchain thing or a coin, I think it was first met at that time with optimism, with intrigue. And with general interest that this could be something worthwhile. And I think what 2022 has shifted about that is that now consumers, investors, the public look at these types of products, particularly things in the art market, first with skepticism, where the company, the product needs to prove themselves to be trustworthy because of all the things we've seen. My broader perspective on NFTs and the crypto space and its relationship to art is actually a pretty simple one. And it's one that it took me a long time to like formulate this sentence. And it's the most non-complex statement of fact that I've probably ever uttered on this podcast. When a person, a consumer, or a group of consumers are merely looking at art purely as a vehicle for getting them to a place of 
capital gains and growth and looking at it merely from the perspective of financial gain, period, without investigating the concept, the creators of the object, the, the essence of the object. Whenever those considerations are not made, which they clearly were not made when it came to NFTs in particular, what ended up happening? There was a massive collapse and a Ponzi scheme that was uncovered. And a lot of people feeling angry on every single side, feeling like they're, they've been hurt, they've been lied to, they've been misled. Artists, quote-unquote quote artists who were working in that field, coming out of this saying like, what am I supposed to do now? This was the medium I was working in. Where do I go? How am I supposed to mm -hmm. make money? This goes back to something that, you know, I've sort of been mumbling to myself in my crazy corner alone, which is the older I get and the more I study art and art history, as I watch contemporary art unfold, I begin to realize that the art world is particularly conservative for a reason. And when I say conservative, I don't mean you like- You mean small C conservative. Yeah. Right. I don't mean like dresses below the knees and, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. They're but pro they're very protective is the word. They're, they're very protective and they don't jump into these types of situations quickly and willy-nilly because they do feel that not only do they have genuine assets to protect, they have legacies to protect. And they are incredibly judicious about who they bequeath these legacies onto and then once you're sort of in the, you know, in, in the pantheon with the gods, they're going to be very careful in like stewarding you and your legacy into the future, which means they're going to be very careful about what they, what kinds of projects and what kinds of deals they do or do not let your estate get involved with when you're older and perhaps a little less, you know, tech savvy, you may be more protected or insulated by your estate or your advisors to not get involved with these types of projects, et cetera, et cetera. With how quickly crypto was brought to its knees in its, you know, major 1.0 run, global run on the market and in turn what that meant for nfts which were digital assets that were being you know bought and sold like you know pogs or trading cards it was met with a lot of skepticism but i think at a certain point there was this feeling of fomo where so many artists worth feeling like, well, if I don't get involved in this, I'm going to get left behind because mm -hmm. right. all these 
big name artists are getting into yeah, this. Yeah, Urs Fisher, Hearst. Yeah. Or Pace starting a crypto thing or just the institutional art world support for it in its early phases, you saw, for sure. And right. Artists felt the pressure to join up. Right. And, and you know, personally, I did not get involved. And I know a lot of other artists that made the choice not to get involved. And maybe there would have been a quick buck to have been made. But at what expense? Like, I remember when I was learning about NFTs and I was talking to these, like, experts and they're like, teaching me about this thing they're like you need to understand there's this thing called a roadmap right so it's not just like it's not just like you're gonna make like a a jpeg and like we're gonna sell this to like your community that we're gonna pump through reddit and through discord discord or whatever to get you to buy it's like we're gonna be dropping breadcrumbs and eventually it'll all lead up to like a music festival or like meet and greets or this or that or like a golden ticket or a prize and how many people were just like buying into these things thinking that there's like this pot of gold at the end of it there was no like accountability these people who were inventing remember you showed me these tiktok videos where like you could literally invent an nft project out of thin air they would teach you exactly how to do it what words to say where to place it exactly how to market it whatever and these people most certainly were not artists no way they were at best business people no at best. Yeah. At, at, best, at best business people. At best entrepreneurs. And at like most likelihood, they were like scam artists. Yeah. I, I think one of the things I want to say about the NFT situation that's happened over the last year is that one of the things that always rubbed me wrong about the space was the idea that ownership became the most important factor with a work of art as opposed to the work, the artists, what it's saying, its message. Because bragging or displaying what you own in terms of your cultural items has been around for hundreds of years, whether it's princes and dukes and kings displaying their artwork or contemporary collectors opening up private museums. But I'd like to think that even though ownership was important to those collectors of the past, the actual work, the merits of it still mattered. And I felt like the NFT stripped away the work and the artist. And the most valuable thing about the art became who owns it. It was a pure ownership thing. Mm-hmm. It was my name's on the blockchain immutably. And to me, that always rubbed me the wrong way. It was like stripping away, I think, the beauty and the cultural value that some of these objects have. And that's what always rubbed me the wrong way. And I think maybe in 2022, I think more people started to realize that that wasn't utopic as it was sold in the previous years. So something else that has transpired in 2022 that I personally sort of witnessed on a global level because I went to the most 
international art fairs this last year than I've ever gone to in one singular year is this realization that art, which used to be sort of niche, the weird kid sister that was like, it was like Hollywood, and then it was, you know, the music and entertainment industry, and then fashion was somewhere pretty close to the to that. And then art and the art world. No, then it was sports. Mm-hmm. Like, and then below that. The ugly stepchild. The ugly stepchild sister that like eh, she's into weird stuff we gotta invite her to the thanksgiving dinner yeah she's coming whatever she's gonna she's gonna like ruin the conversation (laughs) with debbie downer type you know modernism yeah yeah you know the 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 debbie downer is slowly becoming one of the most popular girls in a global high school yeah which has been very, very, very interesting to watch. The art world has gone mainstream. The art world is going mainstream. And you, I love what you called it in a couple episodes back. You called it Baselcella. But with these art fairs in particular that are not just art fairs unto themselves, but are essentially these week-long festivities that take over these major international metropolises where there's art events happening in every single little nook and cranny possible. And whether you're looking for, you know, the creme de la creme, highest, most revered, form of blue chip fine art that one may encounter or if you're looking for you know something way below that like alec monopoly knockoff (laughs) slum festing you know which is like even worse you can find events like that happening at the same time. Nightclubs, parties, brand activation, yes. celebrity appearances that have nothing to do with art Basel or right. freeze. It's it's just like you said, the fairs are not limited to the actual art fair event. They are this party, this social setting for all the cool kids to come down and explore for that period of time. Exactly. And it's so that's the Coachellification of art. Yeah, and I and a lot of them, I wonder if it, they're even coming for the art, so much as they're coming for the amazing Instagram opportunities and the the FOMO that is deeply associated with these things that is perpetuated throughout all of social media and i mean there are a lot of really great things to do in miami i mean basel in switzerland is a little more niche but paris plus like who who would you know give up an opportunity to go to paris and just use 
going to see great art as an opportunity, as if Paris already wasn't a great opportunity for that, or going to Korea to see, you know, I mean, I had always wanted to go to Seoul. I'd always been super interested in going. And then Seoul Freeze was announced. And I didn't even think twice. It was like, I was going. I did not care. I had to go. I needed to go see that. And it was absolutely amazing. And not to mention the art event of the year, which was the Venice Biennale, which I don't know if you knew this, but it was the most attended Venice Biennale in the history of it. And it's been around for over a century. 800,000 unique people came to go see the Biennale, which based on the days it was open was around 4,000 new people a day just flowed into that city. It was an international event. It really was. I think 2022 was the year that pop culture and mainstream pop culture and art just they hooked up in the, in the hotel room late at night and they are now, you know, sneakily still talking to each other, but oftentimes maybe popping out to dinner in public every once in a while. I mean, I think about the beginning of this year in LA, the LACMA Museum did an exhibition in collaboration with Interscope Records, which was Jimmy Iovine and Dr. Dre's kind of thing with some of the most important music of the time. And they collaborated with different artists and brought musicians and artists together in this exhibition. And it was like Cecily Brown, Billie Eilish, Kahinda Wiley, Eminem, Lady Gaga, Emily Mae Smith, and a bunch more huge names in music and in the art world together in these cross collaborations. And to me, that was the red herring, that ugly stepsister, as you called it, is now sitting at the head of the table. Yeah, or no, I... Let's not closer put her, let's not put table. her at the head of the table yet, <laughs> but let's say she's getting closer and closer. And on a related note, something that transpired in 2022 was that artists began, I think, to take more control of their careers and reevaluate their relationship with the art world. What do I mean by that is that I think you saw this was the year where artists maybe left galleries, decided they didn't want to be represented by any that they wanted to try new models. And maybe you can talk a little bit about this idea of the artist agent and its rise in the art world. And I think artists in 2022 began to truly see themselves as multifaceted and had ambition outside of just selling a work of art in a gallery, but really wanted to build a multidisciplinary practice. Now, potentially, the business model and the capabilities of traditional galleries in 2022, I think you started to see that they might not be able at this moment to handle the demands of a new generation artist that desires a cross-discipline practice and wants to do big things, build businesses, create nonprofits, do projects outside of just fine art, build their brand, partner with different companies on things. So. I think autonomy, artist autonomy happened in a big way in 2022. Let's just think about it for a second. Galleries have been doing their thing for a while, which is they come in. Well, usually what galleries do is they're like they they sit there and they watch like small little emerging galleries toil and do like all the hard work for them. once an artist's work has been sold to a few good collectors, 
and they've been proven in the marketplace, these mid-tiers or these mega-minus galleries are like entitled assholes and they come on in and swoop them up and they make these artists either sign these contracts or just do handshake agreements which hello artists don't ever fucking do that Mm -hmm. get a contract and read your contract and have a lawyer read your contract because you're not beholden to any of these people and trust me they love making a buck off your back so you might as well make a buck off there so pay attention to what you're signing but in recent history there's been this like fear mentality that a lot of artists had which was like oh my god like if i don't sign with this gallery like i'll never have another one ever again who will ever be interested in me and i'm i'm 25 and my career is just gonna like go nowhere and then like i'm gonna be lost to obscurity and no one's gonna give a shit about me and then like i'm gonna die in the gutter somewhere (laughs) and it's like not true it is not true like you go into a car dealership and you start talking to somebody about like the cars they have on their lots and they narrow in on like the two or three cars that you'll probably want and then they're and then all of a sudden they're like well you know mrs jones earlier put an an offer in on that exact same car and mr black put an offer in on that other car that you like and blah, blah 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 and all of a sudden they're driving up this like anxiety and this false scarcity that like if you don't hurry up and sign with them and if you don't get going and working with them right away you're gonna lose your one and only chance to be represented in the art world by a gallery and guess what kitties galleries are becoming obsolete when it comes to the representational model of artists A lot of artists don't want to be represented by one gallery anymore. If anything, they're happy to work on individual deals. As consignments. As consignments with a gallery on a particular project. But there's no more of this like, yes, master, now put a leash on me and drag me around for the next 12 years and march me out like a little trick pony so long as I'm relevant, I'm cute, I'm precious, and I'm cool. But the minute I'm irrelevant, I'm going to stop getting my annual, you know, solo show or you're going to stop bringing me to fairs or you're not going to be pushing me as hard anymore, you know, and a lot of artists are like, fuck that. I don't want to work that way. That's not how it works. Galleries, in all technicality, their fiduciary responsibility should be to the artists that they represent. But what ends up happening, as we all know, is their fiduciary responsibility tends to actually be with their clients. And their clients are their collectors. 
right. and they care more about making them money and making them successful than they often do about making their artists long-term sustainably successful. So a lot of artists in the last couple of years, and 2022 is a crescendo of that, are like, guess what, guys? I don't want to sign a fucking contract with you. You want to do one project? Cool. And you know what? You can pay me 70% of that deal. Yeah. Or whatever. I, th I think this is a evolution and a result of the mainstreaming of art where many artists have really become larger than just their practice, where they are commanding a new level of power within the art world. And this was the year I think they started to really exercise it by, like you said, not being beholden to one gallerist. They want to show works across the world at their own pace and their model of not being fully represented, but having things like agents or complex studio managers that decide these things for them, gave them greater control over their career. I agree. So we'll see what happens in this coming year because I'm, I'm hearing from my friends that are even my age. So let's say people that are in their mid-30s, right? Who can we can we just like for the sake of my own mental sanity say are youngish? Mid they are definitely young. Mid thirties. So young. We're the mid thirties. We're youngish, right? We're we're youngish. We're like we're like you know eight to ten years on the market or working in a marketplace. And a lot of a lot of these artists are people who you know clung for dear life, fought you know, fought through the really hard times to be able to continue to have a practice and continue to grow and to make a name for themselves. And by the way, because this is coming up again, let me tell you a little trick to how you do that, guys. Artists stick with the artists. That's how it happens. Anyway, and, you know, they're they're finally now coming into this position where this dealer wants them and that dealer wants them and they don't want any of them. They're getting <laughs> they're getting offered this show and they're getting offered that show and whatever. And you know what? They are able to say yes to anything and everything that they may or may not want to do. And they don't have to sign with any of these galleries because it's all on their terms. Whereas a few years ago, the way it worked was once you signed with a gallery, you had to ask your gallery's permission. Like, hey, dear gallery, Sir King, would it be okay if, like, I had a show on the West Coast? And you know what? If your gallerist was a spiteful little cunt and didn't like whoever you were showing over with over on the West Coast, they'd be like, no. Yeah. I think that's one of the reasons, this is a tangent, but slightly related, is that you saw a lot of galleries within the last year open up outposts out in Los Angeles, mm -hmm. coming from New York typically, and saying, okay, we want to have a gallery over there. And it was intriguing. A bunch of them did it. And why was to ensure that they were doing some form of territory protection so that their artists 
the ones that had shown with them in New York and perhaps were signed in New York, didn't start to flirt with other LA galleries that had outposts out there because I think LA is an attractive place for a lot of artists to show their artwork because they either live out there, they have friends out there, they just like it. So there's a little bit of territory protection by some of the big galleries to open up spaces out West. And this is to counteract this effect that artists can now kind of flirt around. They can kind of, they can kind of see what they want to do without being so beholden. Yeah, but we'll see how long that lasts because it'll be a rude awakening for all of those galleries when they realize there's about maximum 25 art collectors in the entirety (laughs) of Los Angeles. So I want to turn it over to another topic, another trend that happened in 2022, something that has crescendoed in the last few months, and that is what's been going on at museums. Museums have experienced, I think, three major dramas this year. One being something that Jared and I have talked about on the podcast a lot, which is climate protests. So we won't really hash into those too much. But another big one is unionization and labor movements within museums this year. So workers at nearly two dozen American art museums, including the Whitney, Guggenheim, MoCA in LA, have created collective bargaining units in recent years to push for better pay and working conditions. And this has been troubling for museum boards. Not to mention another added thing, which is there has been a a siren call for museums to repatriate looted objects. American museums have returned looted artifacts to their countries of origins in recent years, and it's becoming very routine for them to have to do so. Recent ones, including objects from Italy, Cambodia, Nigeria, and Egypt. And this has been a response to the outcries against historic aggressive tactics and kind of unethical practices of some museums in the past. And generally, museums have had to change some of these things due to this larger movement to address some of the injustices of the past and representation issues. So I do want to keep an eye on this as we move forward, how this will shake out in the museum. It's particularly interested on the the labor union side of this equation. So Jerry, In 2022, sadly, we did lose some important figures in the art world. So do you want to go through some of the artists that we lost this year? Of course. We lost the one and only Carmen Herrera, Sam Gilliam, Klaus Oldenburg, Paula Rigo. And we also lost Pierre Soulage and one of my favorite writers from The New Yorker, an art world figure. Peter Sheldahl. So they've all made a very lasting imprints on art history. And in particular, especially with Carmen, who I didn't even know about Carmen and her career until much later in her life, because a lot of people didn't know about her. No, I think she was rediscovered until much later in her life. You know, I I think she is in many ways, the proof of a lot of what we've been speaking about lately, which is the the harvest of all of this hard work that people are doing now to go back and carve back into art history and not necessarily alter art history and the story as we know it, but instead elaborate on on it by introducing other 
very important figures and characters into the mix and create a more illustrious and rich portrait of how we've come to where we are in this contemporary moment are by, you know, people going back and finding amazing artists like Carmen Herrera or Sam Gilliam, for example. So it's, of course, a very sad loss, though, you know, I didn't know about them for very long, but it it must have been so incredible for them to have had such a long career for so many years and to never stop and to always work. And then towards the end of their life, when maybe they had thought they would not ever really get recognized on a global scale for the types of things they did. And surprise, you know, God had a little birthday party for them before they left Earth, which was they got to see the fruits of their labor manifest on Earth before they left. And that is very lovely and beautiful. And so I'm so happy for them. And also shout out to Peter Sheldahl. It's uh, my mother let me know actually when he passed away. I knew by his name that he had a Swedish last name. But my mom was like, oh, Hildy, did you know he's from my hometown in <laughs> North Dakota? It's like, no, mom. And no one's from her, her hometown. And, and also, I was just like, Mom, I, I didn't know that smart smart people came. <laughs> <laughs> no offense to mom. You know, we've we've lost a few of our older, more iconic figures in this last year, but lost but not forgotten, right. as, as we say. And the art world keeps turning. So there were some new figures that rose to prominence in 2022. And I want to say that it really was dominated by women and artists of color, which I think is a great thing. And it truly, it truly was. And, you know, I didn't have to look far. I mean, just in the auction market, you had new stars like Anna Wyant, Flora Yuknevic, Lucy Ball, Izzy Wood. Obviously, Simone Lee was, was the toast of summer, winning the Golden Lion at the Venice Biennale. Mm-hmm. Ernie Ball, an overlooked artist who had a massive auction results and a great interest in the history of his work. And it's funny, I, I think you and I have come to the conclusion that maybe 22 was was the year of Barbara Kruger. Mm-hmm. Is that right? I want to say that maybe she, from, from all the artists pool, I think was the most important and someone who's, whose work is resonating now more than ever. And I think Barbara, I mean, I saw her shows at Warner, uh, Spooth Moggers out west, and then in LA in the museum, she had a, another show. And I think it was just, it was really a, an amazing thing to see for her and her practice. Yeah, a shout out to her because I uh, love her so much. So huge inspiration. She is larger than life. So Jerry, that about does a, a decent retrospective of 2022, but why don't we kick it over to some predictions that we have for 2023? Do you want to give me one that you have? I mean, yeah, the the main one that I've been predicting all along is that we're we're definitely stepping into 
an art market recession, or if you want to call it a cooling off in particular in the speculative arena. And speculative is also a code word in many instances for the emerging contemporary art market. Right. And I think just anecdotally at Basel this year, and you've mentioned this on the podcast before, this isn't breaking, but you had conversations with dealers in early December that were having trouble moving artworks, emerging artworks at certain price levels. Simply find Yeah, at first I heard it was a million and then I heard it was a hundred thousand. And now, you know, I'm still getting information matriculating in from Art Basel and I'm even hearing that works fifty five thousand dollars by blue chip galleries were not moving from their booths. So Yeah. And on the auction side in the secondary, there was results in Hong Kong that came from the big auction houses, Christie, Sotheby's and Phillips. Hong Kong auctions in the this winter, late 2022 auction season declined by 34% year over year. So perhaps the signs that the art market recession is coming are already, already in effect. I got a prediction. I think that contemporary abstract painting will have its moment in 2023. We've talked about this before. I think everything that we've experienced collectively as a society in the last few years, the Collective trauma, it's going to be difficult if art really is reflective of our times to express these things in figurative format. I go back to World War II after the trauma of that war and how it really shaped and led to abstract expressionism rising as an art form. I think contemporary abstract artists will begin to make inroads against their quote-unquote competitors, which are the figurative painters, which have dominated auction results and gallery shows for the last few years. Any other predictions for you? Yeah, I have a feeling that there is somewhere on the horizon, whether it be 2023, 2024, there's very likely to be a Picasso retrospective on its way. I've just noticed, I, you know, I've been counting them as I've been seeing them. There's been a significant influx of Picassos on the the market at some of the premium art fairs and in particular in some of the major blue chip dealers booths as well as some of the more prestige secondary dealer booths and that is usually indicative of a large influx of them coming onto the market and let's face it, it's not just collectors who go to these fairs. It's quite often curators who go on behalf of museum boards who begin planning big blockbuster shows for the next year or two in advance. And the fact that there's been so many on the market, it seems quite likely that this would be a very easy show to curate. If you noticed in the last couple of years, it was the exact same thing with Alex Katz. And what did we get? We got a huge retrospective of Alex Katz at the Guggenheim. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see a big Picasso retrospective on its way sometime soon. So I think that Instagram is going to have a renaissance in 2023. And here's why. There is serious talk about banning TikTok in the US. It's already actually been banned on the phones of government officials, and there's bills in the House and Senate that are speculating 
that are aiming to have TikTok banned in the US for national security reasons. So that eliminates a competition. But moreover, what Musk has done over at Twitter with features he's rolled out, hate it or love it, it definitely has shown Silicon Valley and social media technology companies that change is needed on some of these platforms. And I think it might actually lead to Meta taking a look at the Instagram algorithm and making tweaks to it and maybe making it a little bit more transparent and open, which I think can lead to a healthier interaction and community for its users, which I think artists are still on there heavily, but maybe have flirted with other platforms within the last few years. But I think with all that's happened in 2022, I think Instagram will make a revival uh, next year. And the last one, because art that has been so overly financialized, as well as this culture of narcissism that has been overemphasized to the point at which we're all sort of tired of it and it's pretty stale at this point. I think there's going to be a swinging back or I wouldn't even call it a backlash, but there's going to be a movement or a moment where artists are going to say, wait, hold the phone. That's a very, very small swath of artists that, you know, identify and work very hard towards upholding these values, whereas not all of us look, think, and feel this way. And also with the financial crisis just impending around the corner, I think that there's going to be a shifting in financial priorities. Not that money will fall out of focus, but this idea that art in of itself is purely there just to be a financial asset alone will probably fall out of fashion and become something of like you said neo artipovera well it'll i th i think it'll become something where maybe there'll be a little bit of shame that people feel looking back into recent history because people will be like yikes like it really went there like it really went to like pictures <laughs> of monkeys wearing like smoking a, cigarettes, a captain's hat, smoking a cigarette, selling for hundreds of thousands of dollars, and it was a JPEG. Yeah. Meanwhile, you know there are, as we know, far, far, far more talented artists who just chose not to participate in Ponzi schemes like that. And I think there's going to be sort of a swing backwards into that. That is art always. Yeah. And if you use historical examples, when an art movement becomes too prominent, the one that subsequently comes afterward is often an antithetical, almost opposite response stylistically mm -hmm. and with its motives. So the drama and the theatrics of Baroque led to something way more lighthearted like Rococo or neoclassicism which was so perfect led its way to romanticism which was not perfect but more expressive and then even more contemporary like abex and pop flowed into minimalism which was as different from those mm -hmm. things as could possibly be so i think if you define that the art of our time is financialization yes i think the next movement would be something that is that is definancialized mm -hmm. like art de pauvre like you said yeah 
I think just quickly, we've already hit on these in our previous discussion, but like, I think artists are going to continue to experiment with new models in 2023 and artist agencies will continue to rise in this art autonomy, artist independence movement. It's just going to keep growing. And then lastly, art will continue to be a mainstream thing and reach even newer heights in 2023. Art fairs might even start to grow further. They're going to become bigger events. You'll see a confluence similar to like the LACMA Interscope Records project, but you'll see things in fashion, things along the lines of what Louis Vuitton's already doing with Kusama or Kennedy Yanko or any of these other artists. Where or fashion you might even art. see a major fashion house open an art gallery. Yeah, that's a. I think that's a really interesting call. I mean, there's been some rumblings about LVMH getting involved in the art game more, you know, seriously. Yeah, or but. Maybe they just buy their, they start their own. Yeah. And they start from scratch and they run it like a retail business. Mm -hmm. Can see it. So we'll see. So Jerry, that was our retrospective of 2022 with some predictions of 2023. Yeah. Did you have fun? I did. It was a, it was a, it was a crazy year. It went by really fast, but. I think 2023 is going to be crazier. It was almost like this was the 2022 was just the little porthole that <laughs> that shepherded us into the big year. Well, fortunately for you guys, you'll have Jerry and I here to talk you through the craziness that's upcoming. The podcast is going to keep going strong. So make sure you subscribe, give us a review on Spotify and iTunes, drop a comment on Jerry's Instagram when it comes out. We will probably be doing a bonus episode very soon. Yes. You guys were kind enough to send through a bunch of questions to Jerry's Instagram, and we promise you that we'll answer them in a Q&A. So look out for that. As always, please subscribe and become a member of Jerry's mailing list at gagosian.com to get access to the podcast, but also all the writings and great reports that Jerry's been putting out. And this is really an opportunity for you to go deeper on a lot of these thoughts. When we, you know, when we run through the podcast. Obviously, we're being very aware of your time. We don't want to keep you listening to a podcast for three hours. <laughs> Meme, again, is also very short form. But when I'm writing, concise as I may try to be with my particular language, I am going as in-depth as I possibly can to really explore different phenomenas that are taking place in the art world, but also in the broader global economy and helping create a picture for why the world is sort of playing out the way that it plays. So when I send out these reports, you're, you're, you're getting a, a very nutritious snack, if you will, of why the world looks and feels and tastes the way it does from your art perspective. So I really encourage you, if you're interested in these things, whether you're a collector or you're an artist or you're somebody who's just very interested in these perspectives, to spend the $5 a month or spend the $30 a month and get invited to the parties and the smaller, more intimate VIP events that we do hold. But either way, it's really a good opportunity for you to delve deeper into these topics that will and do affect us all. So 
again, gagosian.com. That's your place. Sounds good. All right, Jerry. We will talk to you guys, the audience, in the new year yeah. or before with a nice bonus episode. So this was fun. As always, see you later. See you on the internet.